0: The following Knowledge at Warden podcast is brought to you by Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their financial goals. Visit Vanguard.com.
1: On May 6th, conservative Nicolas Sarkozy won the French presidential election, defeating socialist Ségolène Royal and taking over from Jacques Chirac, who had been in the post for 12 years. The election drew a very high 85% turnout, which many saw as a sign that French voters recognized the need to get out from under their economic stagnation and social unrest. Sarkozy is depicted as a friend but also a critic of the U.S., as a defender up to a point of the European Union, and as a reformer bent on changing France's burdensome labor laws but also willing to meet with union leaders. Knowledge at Wharton asked Jeff Weintraub, A visiting scholar with the University of Pennsylvania's political science department, whose interests lie in comparative politics, political sociology, political economy, and culture, to give us his views on the consequences of Sarkozy's election. I'd like to start by mentioning that The Economist headlined Sarkozy's victory as, quote, mercifully a fresh start for France, end quote. Do you agree with that assessment?
2: Not necessarily. I I think I've been struck by the extent to which, Uh, people trying to analyze the long-term impact of Sarkozy's victory come up with very different conclusions. And this includes people who know France very well. And I think the honest answer is that we don't really know yet. We don't really know yet exactly what he intends to accomplish because he created a very strong profile in the election. But I don't think he's really committed himself to a very specific set of policies. And we also don't know what he's going to be able to accomplish. That depends on a lot of other things. But... um, in one sense, it's true that Sarkozy was able to win because he conveyed to more French voters than his opponents the idea that he did stand for a fresh start. This was really the striking thing about the French election: that uh, the French across the board were feeling very disgruntled. There was um, a piece right after, right either right after or right before the first round of the elections by Tony Jutt, which I found quite interesting because. Uh, although he's basically a man of the left, he was really willing to put in a good word for Chirac. And he also said the French shouldn't feel as disgruntled as they as they do, because they have a pretty successful country. They're doing pretty well in, uh, okay, they're falling a little behind some other countries, but they have a good quality of life and so on. But the fact is, the French felt very disgruntled. And what was striking was that all three of the major candidates in the first rounds—that that is, say, Sarkozy and Royal and this other independent candidate, Beirut, all of them ran as candidates of change. And all of them did in some ways stand for change. Um, so the French wanted change, but I don't think they know exactly what kind of change they want. And Sarkozy conveyed the impression that he would in some ways loosen things up uh, in terms of things like labor laws and so on, and also tighten things up (laughs) in terms of national identity and maintaining social order. But he hasn't really said exactly what he's going to do with that. The Economist, um, it still maintains its fundamental commitment that from back in the 19th century to what used to be called economic liberalism, it would like fewer tariffs, fewer, fewer international trade, more open markets, and so on. Nobody in French politics is really committed to the, um, uh, that kind of vision. Um, they couldn't possibly get elected, and if they tried it, um, they wouldn't stay in power. It is true that um, all three of the candidates flirted with the idea that there's some need to loosen up on some of the rigidities in French life. Um, there's some need to loosen up on regulation. Uh, there's uh, some need to loosen up on what in India used to be called the License Raj, which <laughs> means it takes forever to get things started. But um, Sarkozy, for example, has a complicated message that way. Um, Martin Wolf of the uh, Financial Times was stretching a bit, but I think he caught something in which he said, this is, there are these very Colbertist sort of echoes, not Stephen Colbert, but Colbert from Louis XIV, <laughs> That is to say, Sarkozy wants in some ways to loo- loosen things up and bring down barriers within France, but facing the outside world, his rhetoric has been very protectionist. He, like everybody else in French life, he thinks globalization is a potential threat. He thinks he actually called, he, he said, we have to reassure people that the European Union is not a Trojan horse for uh, globalization. And um, we could get into what Sarkozy might be doing with the European Union, but... You know, I do think it's probable that Sarkozy will try some changes to increase flexibility in um, labor practices and so on. Wouldn't be the first time. I mean, Jacques Chirac had several prime ministers who tried to do that, and it caused an explosion. One of the interesting things about the whole political history of France since the revolution is that the French often are attracted in the abstract to change and radicalism, but in the concrete... (laughs) They usually don't want uh, settled ways to be that thoroughly um, uh, challenged or disrupted. I think he may do some of that. The question is um, how he does it, because one way to do it is the Thatcherite way, which is essentially to demolish all the institutions of the welfare state and of social protection, which I happen to think was socially and economically catastrophic for Britain, Another way is to do it the way some of the Scandinavian countries have been able to do it, which is to loosen up those sorts of things, but find ways to um, actually to retrain people and to provide secure safety nets for people and to maintain good public services, uh, which means um, that you don't immediately fall through the cracks. So whether that can be done in France, I don't know. But that's, I've actually started several long answers, but I think that's partly uh I think The Economist is going to be disappointed in Sarkozy.
0: Well, One question. We were speaking about what kind of changes Sarkozy could bring about. Uh, he won a 53% to 47% victory. Uh, would you regard that to be a big enough mandate to bring about any real reforms?
2: My impression is yes. Uh, and again, I'm not an expert in French politics, and one always has to say it depends Depends on several things. It depends, above all, on what happens in the legislative elections uh, in June. If he wins a solid majority, or the centre right wins a solid majority, then he has something which um, nobody has really had for a while, and which certainly Margaret Thatcher never had, which was a definite national mandate. You know, he ran the election as an advocate of serious changes. If this election is followed up by a victory in the legislative elections, then I think he can do all sorts of things. I think the, um, the other side of it is... And uh, here I would draw a slight parallel to Thatcher. Thatcher never carried a majority of the British electorate, but the opposition to her was divided. And more than that, one of Thatcher's strengths was the sense that all of her opponents were basically stagnant or bankrupt or just captive to corporatist special interests and so on. And in a milder way, that's a little bit of the mood that helped carry Sarkozy across. That is to say, he has a mandate, but also he doesn't he's not facing an organized opposition. And anything he tries to do will of course set off massive shockwaves from groups that stand to lose. But he's in a much better position to face them down than, uh, you know, Chirac's um, prime ministers were. So I think he can probably, if he knows what he's doing, I think he can probably accomplish a good deal.
1: He, he resigned as leader of the Conservative Party earlier this week, and he apparently plans to appoint one, if not more, socialists uh, to the cabinet. He's clearly trying to portray himself as someone who's a unifier. Now, is that is that a serious attempt on his part to do this, or is it just post election posturing?
2: I don't pretend to be a political handicapper, and I don't know all the inside goth for French politics. But I think um, there's there's a serious agenda here. Whether he can actually carry it through, I don't know. I mean, part of uh, part of the background to the current French system is that. Um, De Gaulle left this massive imprint on the whole political system. In a sense, every French party in government has been Gaullist ever since. And part of that is this kind of semi-monarchical role that the president has. And uh, Sarkozy clearly intends to play that to the hilt and be the president of all the people, as Lyndon Johnson used to say un- unsuccessfully. I think he's going to make a serious effort to bring in people from outside the center-right, even though it's already got people in the center-right screaming. Um, my guess, the the rumor I've heard, which is the most interesting, and I would say the most likely, is the idea that he would bring in Bernard Kushner to be the foreign minister. Uh, that would be a very serious change, since Kushner, we go back to the ambivalence that the French were showing in this election, you know, the... Um, one of the central principles of Gaulism is this insistence on strong national interests, national grandeur, uh, diehard opposition to the United States or Anglo-Saxon hegemony, um, uh, the hyperpower, etc., and plus the um, a very seriously and soberly anti-idealist approach in foreign policy. I mean, France, I think, more than any other. Western European country I know of, is uh, a country in which these really unembarrassed appeals to national grandeur and national interest are still part of ordinary discourse. During the Mitterrand period, uh, when the French supported all sorts of murderous and even cannibalistic dictators in Africa, nobody blinked. That's just the way things go. When they blew up, you know, the Rainbow Warrior and so on, which would have been, I think, a scandal. In most other Western countries, nobody cared that 's foreign policy. plus, um, a lot of the French feel um, vindicated by the fact that the Bush Cheney gang had made such a mess in Iraq. But at the same time, there's a dirty little secret behind that is that part of the background to the crisis at the end of the '90s was that the Baathist regime had always been a client of the French. They had supplied them you know with their first actually it was Chirac as Prime Minister back in the 1970s that gave him his first nuclear reactor. And uh, they had colluded with the Baathist regime to try to undermine containment, so they had helped produce this situation. Now, in some ways, the French approve of that, but this is something else. The There were very few major figures in French political life who supported the war and opposed what the French were doing. And one of them is Bernard Kushner, who has a totally different background. He helped to start, you know, Doctors Without Borders. He's uh, a long-term humanitarian and human rights activist. He was the first UN commissioner in Kosovo and so on. He basically repudiates everything that I've just talked about, and he's one of the most popular politicians in France. I don't totally understand that, but he stands for a more idealistic and, dare one say, a more Blairist foreign policy. So if um, Sarkozy brings him in, it would be a way of signaling that he's going to make a break with Chiracism, and Mitterrandism in every respect. Where it goes, I don't know. But I think the answer is, yes, he's going to try to build a royal coalition that goes beyond particular parties. Whether he'll succeed, I don't know.
0: Let's turn to a couple of questions on the economic front. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week, Sarkozy met with union leaders in an obvious attempt to bring them into the reform dialogue. What do you think are the chances that he might be able to bring about significant change in France's protective labor market. That's the first question. Mm-hmm. The second one is he has also pledged to bring down unemployment from 8.3% to less than 5% by 2012. Uh, do you think that's a realistic goal? I think both, both these are related questions. Part of the answer,
2: I think the, the most important part of the answer is that I, I don't really know. I'm not sure he knows. But um, once again, if Sarkozy has a coherent program, I'm not totally sure that he does. But if he does, then he is, at least for the moment, in a strong position. Because the basic pattern of corporatist politics in France, which goes back to the old regime, Tocqueville identified it, is that you have a lot of groups that aren't quite capable of getting together to run the the country. They depend on some kind of (laughs) despotic sovereign. But they have a tremendous capacity for resistance when they're... um, position or their interests or their privileges are, uh, are threatened. And that clearly, that's what Sarkozy is going to run into. Now, the other side of it, though, is that the unions have a very strong position in certain areas of the French economy, but the total number of workers unionized in France, especially in the non-state sector, is not enormous. And um, if Sarkozy is able to build public support for the notion that he's not just trying to bash particular groups of workers, but that he really can restart the engine of the French economy, then I think he could, he potentially can get very wide support. I, I think a lot of it depends on whether he also has things to offer the unions. Some of the other European countries, especially some of the Scandinavians, have demonstrated that it's princ- in principle it's possible to reduce... restrictive and protective practices in labor markets if you offer people a wider safety net and more opportunities. But that requires a much wider program and also one that appeals to um, uh, a general sense of solidarity. Sarkozy is clearly trying, going to try to cast himself as someone pursuing a politics of the common good, which has been either in reality or As rhetoric, one of the things that a lot of the most successful political leaders in the West have done. Now, uh, in a curious way, France and the U.S. are parallel but mirror images. I mean, I I think the the politics of the common good is very weak in the U.S., but what counters it is mostly a kind of extreme individualism, whereas in France, what counters it is usually this corporatist kind of resistance. But... um, I think that's something for which Sarkozy has a bit of a mandate. As for whether he can um, reduce unemployment, um, in principle, it shouldn't be that impossible. The fact is, the French economy is still quite strong. It's in many respects, it's extremely good. It shouldn't take a huge number of changes to open up the possibilities for more new hires, more new employment. Particularly if Sarkozy is also able to reduce to slow down new immigration. Which means that which is something he's going to try to do. Whether he can succeed, I don't know, which means there'll be fewer new people at the bottom for the labor market to succeed. So I that's not a, a very clear or precise answer. But that's I my feeling is possibly. I don't know. Depends what he does. One of the other pillars of Gaulism has been that this strong assertion of national sovereignty is combined with a sort of commitment to the European Union, but only on condition that France run it, and that it use the European Union as a means of serving French interests. Sarkozy clearly intends to do this. How exactly? I don't know. And if he'll get away with that, I don't know. But that's going to be part of the answer to your question. If he can get the Germans to to subsidize (laughs) hiring new (laughs) French workers, you know, he will.
1: (laughs) It, I mean, it seems the EU has a number of obstacles to overcome, including the fact that the French and Dutch voters rejected the EU constitution two years ago. Mm-hmm. So you sort of have to wonder um, where exactly France is going to fit into that. And what do you make of, his op- of, of Sarkozy's opposition to Turkey's admission into the EU?
2: The EU project,
1: which from a
2: world historical point of view has been incredibly successful, keeps running into uh running into obstacles, and at the moment, either integration or expansion is not terribly popular in a lot of major European countries. This is a basic problem. It's always been, um, at any given moment, more popular among political elites than among voters, and usually the elites have been able to take the voters along with them. And there have been enough... uh, There's a ratchet effect, because they reach each stage. There have been enough benefits that nobody really wants to rock the boat Um, One of the arguments that Tony Jutt makes, and he's a very sophisticated analyst of French politics, so I, I pay attention sometimes to what he has to say. But his argument was that one thing, he thought one thing that all three of the major candidates in this round shared was that none of them were really as committed to the European project and to European integration as Chirac and his generation. He thought it was partly because they had lived through the Second World War. People now take for granted that a unified Europe in which people don't go to war is a fact, you know, like a natural uh, phenomenon, although it's not. There are two questions that pull in different directions. Uh, One is further and deeper integration and what that means economically and politically. And I think um, right now... Certainly, the French the French electorate has no mood for much more of that, nor, I think, does Sarkozy. I don't think he's going to push on that. Second question is expansion. I think that they're going to take a while to digest the new set of people they brought in from Eastern Europe. You know, they are already frightened of the Polish plumbers. <laughs> and uh, I, I haven't followed the figures on this, but it's for, for various reasons there are immigration, well, or labor movement from the new Eastern European countries to Western European countries is very uneven. For some reason, the amounts in, say, Britain and Spain, for some reason, are hugely greater. In Italy, if they see five foreigners, they go into a panic. I mean, the French, you know, are a little worried about that. Now, when it comes to expansion, though, I I do think this is a problem that um, Turkey is in a class by itself, because Turkey is an extremely big, important country. And it's the only country in the Muslim world that's had something resembling stable democratic representative government for a half century now. Really, I mean, there's no other country that compares. I don't know. I'm, I'm not an expert on Turkey either. But my impression for, well, a couple of decades now has been that the the whole project of the Turkish elite, beginning with Ataturk, to turn Turkey into a modern Western-oriented nation-state. Ironically, the model was very much France, particularly Republican France, in some ways, Jacobin France. It accomplished a lot, but already by the 70s, 80s, it was starting to run into the sand. And part of the problem is that they had really massively transformed certain elements of Turkish society. Turkish elites, you know, are they're European, basically, in their orientation, but it hadn't really gone deep into the population. And um, I began to think that decades ago, there was a good chance that Turkey could go Islamist in the end. And I, uh, Turkish people I know, who I mentioned this to at first, they would scoff at it. They said, there's no support for the Islamists. Then when it turned out there was support, they said, well, they're not like the ones in Iran, you know, which they may not be. I mean, some, <laughs> are, some aren't, some and then whatever. But um, the problem is, in a curious way, when I, the first time I went to Turkey, I, I, suddenly, I had this strange feeling that I was reminded of the fact that the, the Lenin cult and the Atatürk cult began about the same time. I mean, in some ways, Turkey has, at least in its vestiges, the last Leninist regime, not in terms of the state ownership of the means of production, but in terms of this whole notion that you have a, a vanguard party which is carrying out a revolution from above and trying to transform the whole society, um, the old leading role of the party. And which basically keeps a national project going, whatever, you know, people in the society may want. And that's still true for the secular establishment in Turkey. It's just that the role played by the Leninist Party in the Soviet Union is played by the army. And there's a limit to how long they can go on with this. In fact, it's gone on too long, you know. And uh, the army is not going to be able to save democracy um, And if the army steps in again, this will be an excellent excuse for the Europeans to turn down Turkey. My concern for a while has been that the Turkish elite really staked everything on getting into Europe. And a number of intelligent people, including, say, Stanley Hoffman at Harvard, were arguing decades ago. The Europeans, they go through the motions, but they never let them in. Twenty years ago, Hoffman argued it wasn't so much Islam, it was just the prospect of 70 million workers from Anatolia wandering around the European labor market. Now I think it's Islam too, frankly. Even the AK has been affected by the possibility of getting into Europe. If at some point it becomes clear they can't get in, I think the results could be quite disastrous. So I am unhappy about the fact, frankly. My impression is that all three of the major candidates were opposed to Turkish entry. Some people say actually Segolan Reyal's position was more Skeptically ambivalent. I don't know, but Sarkozy has clearly has made it clear. Sure, we'll talk until the cows come home, but they're never going to get in. I, I this is a problem. I think.
0: You know, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about France and Sarkozy. There's also been a, a, a major change on the other side of, of the English Channel, and uh, you know, as sort of the final question, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your view of the departure of uh, Tony Blair from England, and if you think he was a successful prime minister?
2: Oh, successful would be stretching it <laughs> um, This is not an epical shift like what just happened in France. It, they'll muddle through a while, you know, we'll see how Gordon Brown does and so on. Um, there's also a sense in which whoever replaces Blair is going to be a Blairist. In that sense, he's, I think, permanently changed
1: uh, what does that mean?
2: Well, what it means is um, one of the strengths of that Blair and New Labour had coming in, which in some ways resembles what Sarkozy has, is that everybody, the British were all completely fed up <laughs> with uh, the Thatcher era, with Major, you know, with unemployment, sleaze, um, meanness, you know, all that kind of stuff. They wanted something else. They were just afraid to vote for the alternative. So he gave them something that was um, sort of an alternative. And what he put together was a a kind of revised social democratic party, which was much less tied, certainly which gave up any thoughts of the state running large parts of the economy, and which was... um, also, more tied to the kinds of the individualism of the professional middle classes and to um, greater notions of flexibility and so on, but that also would try to be less um, cold and brutal than the Thatcher approach, and would try to would pay attention to the environment, would try to rebuild public services uh, would try to restore some sense of uh, community and so on. And would use much more um, direct and personalistic appeals to the electorate in order to do that. The Labour Party is never really going to break with that. And the only reason the Conservatives are beginning to look like a plausible opposition party is that they've basically copied all of this. Um, David Cameron claims that he's more interested in the environment (laughs) than Tony Blair. You know, give me a break. Uh, this has something to do with public relations, but you know, also more with the general style. I think he actually accomplished a lot, and I think in many ways he was an admirable prime minister. But um, more generally, I mean, I think he repaired some of the damage left over from the Thatcher major years without creating a lot of new damage. There are debates about this, but the poorest people in Britain do seem to have done better than before. Although it's interesting, they the labor government has tried to be quiet about how much many resources is giving to poor people. Um, so um, I think, you know, some of their changes um, taking on the European convention of human rights and uh, the minimum wage and stuff like that. I think they've made a serious effort to try to rebuild public services. My impression is that they've only been, the success has been sort of mixed. The transportation is still a mess um, and education is nothing to write home about, and the health service is better than it was, but still, you know, the the French are better, Um, the Canadians are better, the Dades are better. I mean, why exactly? I don't know. But, I mean, I think there has been some progress there, and it's not impossible that that Brown could build on that. In um, what happens with uh, devolution regional governments, who knows, you know. But I think in those respects, and also given the fact that In sort of pure GNP per capita terms, they've been doing quite well. One of Sarkozy's last um, electioneering trips was actually to the French in London, because, (laughs) (laughs) which, I mean, that was a stroke of genius from a public relations point of view, because they have all these, you know, uh, strivers there. But, you know, Britain, like France, is a country that's socially split uh, along a lot of axes. It's economics is part of it, but also the... Western European societies have trouble dealing with what's called uh, the problem of immigration. And I put quotation marks around that because when people, when they speak of immigrants, very often they mean people like me. I mean, third generation people, they've been living, (laughs) they've never lived anywhere else. They speak the language and so on. But um, they're still really not considered part of the society. And what's interesting, I mean, the U.S. does a lot of things less well. That a lot of the European countries. I think American society is still generally much more successful at taking people from all over the world and turning them, turning us into Americans. But what's interesting is that the different European societies have tried very, very different strategies, and they've all failed, more or less. So that's that's another problem. I don't think they've been successful there. I think um, one of Blair's greatest successes has been that he really put systematic effort for over a decade into trying to broker a peace deal in Northern Ireland. And I think it could all fall apart, but it looks like it might not. And I think that's a major achievement. I mean, I, I would not have believed it possible. I think that um, of all the different major figures involved in the debate, in the controversies leading up to the Iraq war, I actually found Blair the most admirable and his position generally the best. He was not an American poodle, whatever. I mean, he actually had a very different position, which is that he recognized Iraq as a special case, and he thought it should be addressed on the basis of genuine internationalism as a collective security operation, preferably with UN support and so on. And that would have been much better than anything that happened. I mean, his problem was he had a weak hand to play because he was running a 2nd rank power, and he got caught between the Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld... Uh, people on one side and the Chirac-Putin- um, Saddam Hussein axis on the other. So it all basically it wound up, we wound up getting George Bush's war instead of Tony Blair's war. But, you know, Blair, I think um, can take uh, considerable pride in the role he played in trying to mobilize Europeans and Americans to do something about the former Yugoslavia. I think he deserves a lot of credit for what he was, the British were able to accomplish in Sierra Leone, which is quite... Um, striking. And if, frankly, if Blair had been running the U.S. instead of Britain, we'd probably all be better off. But, of course, he could never be elected here. Anyway, I'll That's leave a good it. Ending. That. <laughs> That's a great way to end. Thank,
1: thank you Thanks so much for joining much. us. <laughs> thank you.
2: For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.